problem among our HIV-infected patients. And again, it's an area where there's been a lot of changes and a lot of debate and a lot of emerging data over the last several years about what's causing bone disease, what do we do about it, are there antiretrovirals we need to avoid, should we be doing something differently. And this afternoon, it's my pleasure to introduce Todd Brown from Johns Hopkins, who's one of the acknowledged experts on bone disease and HIV infection. And Todd and I know each other because he's uh, also the bone person on a protocol that we're doing together, uh, or one of the bone people through the ACTG. And he's going to come talk to us today about HIV and osteoporosis and bone disease. Thank you, Todd. Great. Well, uh, thanks for the invitation to come speak to you today. So uh, as HIV treaters, you need to worry a lot about your patients and about a lot of different things. And generally, the HIV is probably the easiest part. You need to, as we heard this morning, you need to be worried about their cervixes and their anuses and their brain. You need to be worried about their heart and their liver. So I'm going to make the argument that you probably need to be worried about their bones, too and uh, give you some uh, tips in, in uh, trying to overcome some of these challenges with the management of osteoporosis and also focus a little bit about vitamin D deficiency as well. So uh, here are my disclosures. Most of these, oops, most of these are related to the development of educational programs surrounding HIV and, and bone disease. So what, at the end of the uh, hour, half hour, uh, I wanted to describe which, uh, be able for you to describe which HIV patients should be screened, to be able to summarize the secondary cause of, of bone loss that should be evaluated, and talk about the optimal treatment strategy for an HIV-infected person with osteoporosis. So here's my beginning question. So let's see how we do. So what tool? can be used to calculate a person's absolute risk of fracture over 10 years. Number one, the Framingham osteoporosis score. Number two, the bone fragility score. Number three, the FRAC score. And number four, the soft score. So most people thought there was, it was the fracs, and uh, a few people thought otherwise. Okay, great. We'll, we'll send that. We'll put that question at the end as well. So osteoporosis and fragility fracture is one of the clear uh, diseases of aging, and about half of women and about a third of men will have osteoporotic fractures during their lifetime. These are data showing the the risk of fracture in the general population. In, uh, in older you know, HIV-negative persons, what you see is that after about age 65 in women and age, after about age 70 in men, there's a dramatic increase in the risk of, of fractures. And these fractures not only cause morbidity, um, but there's a huge mortality associated with fractures as well. Even 10 years out, the mortality rate doesn't go back to baseline after someone has sustained a, a hip fracture. So what about in the HIV-infected uh, patient? And I'll, I'll be uh, through the, throughout here uh, putting case presentations. And so this is a guy that I saw in my lipodystrophy clinic. So I'm an endocrinologist, but I specialize in metabolic problems related to HIV infection. So he was referred to me for body fat changes, 62 years old. 
he had a diagnosed for a, a long time ago uh, with low nadir CD4 cell count, doing well from an HIV standpoint. He was hypogonadal on transdermal testosterone. He had a history of COPD with lots of past smoking history. Uh, and he had received multiple steroid courses for the COPD. He had no history of fracture and no height loss. So here's the first question. Would you screen this patient for osteoporosis? Yeah, so 83% of people thought that they would. So we'll get back to that in a second. So if you look at the National Osteoporosis Foundation guidelines, and this is in the general population, these are the people that they suggest uh, to screen. So those who have a history of fragility fracture, women 65 and older, men men 70 or older, or for postmenopausal women who are younger than 65, or men between 50 or 70, you should screen them if there's a concern based on their risk factor. And so this gentleman had a few risk factors, actually. So he had COPD, he had received multiple steroid courses, and he has had a history of hypogonadism. He also, of course, had HIV and was on antiretroviral therapy. Interestingly, though, if you look at the NOF document, you don't see HIV or heart as one of the risk factors which would prompt you to screen despite the fact that it's about, there are about 200 other conditions that uh, are conditions which would prompt the screen. And we know that in HIV-infected people, there's a higher prevalence of osteoporosis than uh, in HIV-uninfected controls. This is a meta-analysis that we did a few years ago, showing that in this group of st about 11 studies, the overall prevalence of osteoporosis was around 15%. And keep in mind, the average age here was about 41. And compared to their respective HIV uninfected groups, it was about a three and a half fold increased uh, prevalence. And we're seeing now more and more data uh, demonstrating an increased risk of fractures among HIV infected people compared to HIV uninfected. And this is a study that we did uh, from the Mass General database uh, showing this point looking at fragility fractures in men and women, HIV positive and HIV negative. And what you see that after about age 40 in women and at, after about age 30 in men, there is an increased prevalence of fragility fractures among the HIV positive versus the HIV negative. And what, the other thing you notice is that uh, with increasing age, the difference between the HIV positives and HIV negatives increases, suggesting that there's an age-HIV interaction is something that's very, very concerning. So with these data showing a high prevalence of osteoporosis, increased fracture risk, a group of us got together and thought, well, we should have some sort of guidelines or recommendations. And in this document, we did recommend DEXA scanning for all HIV-infected uh, postmenopausal women and men greater than 50. So let's get back to the case. So I did the DEXA. And here were scores. So lumbar uh, T-score minus 2.2, femoral neck T-score minus 2.1, total hip T-score minus 2.3. So what do these scores mean? So osteoporosis is often defined by the DEXA T-score. And this is the number of standard deviations away from a person at their peak bone mass. Uh, and, uh, and osteoporosis is uh, less than, or greater than 2.5 standard deviations less than the average 
BMD at someone's peak bone mass. So that's the T-score of minus 2.5. Osteopenia is between minus 1 and minus 2.5. And normal is greater than minus uh, 1.0. So this gentleman was in the osteopenia range. And uh, DEXA is a good tool, but it's not a great tool. So it does, there is a, a relationship between bone mineral density by DEXA and fracture, showing that for every, uh, that the fracture risk increases by 1.5 to 3-fold for every standard deviation decrease. It's a good tool, but it's not a great tool. So it, it explains only about 50% of fracture risk. So there are other factors that are important in fracture risk which really aren't picked up by DEXA at all. And these things are uh, things like bone quality, for example, the, the material of the bone, and also fall risk. So, uh, and I'll be getting back to, talk, to talking about falls towards the end. Uh, but that, that's not picked up, obviously, by BMD at all, but as a major contributor to fracture. It's important to note that these T-scores are really only valid in older people. So they were first, uh, they were first validated in postmenopausal women and then later in older men. But uh, for younger people, it's recommended to use the Z-score, which is the number of standard deviations away from an age-matched uh, uh, control population. And minus 2 is considered low bone mineral density. So there are, um, like many of the metabolic complications in HIV, uh, the pathophysiology is multifactorial. HIV disease factors probably play a role, although it's a little bit unclear from the current data, where inflammation and certain viral proteins we know have, have effect on osteoblasts and osteoclasts, the major bone cells. Uh, but it's unclear exactly how this uh, translates clinically, whether or not this is a, a real clinical problem with untreated HIV. We know that tenofovir has a specific effect on bone mineral density. We know that certain PIs have an effect, uh, adazanivir, ritonavir, seen in, the, in uh, a recent ACTG trial. And there's also an increased fracture risk uh, of lapinavir, ritonavir. What's curious, and this has been seen in multiple studies uh, over the last 10 years looking at ART initiation, is that uh, despite the fact that, that uh, viral load becomes suppressed and inflammatory markers decrease, you get this a 2 to 6% decrease in bone mineral density over 96 weeks, which then levels out, but never comes back to baseline. The other important uh, set of factors are patient-related factors, of course. And the HIV patients have many factors that, that uh, can lead to bone loss, including low, bone, low body weight, smoking, alcohol, opiate use, hepatitis C co-infection is an important one, physical inactivity hypogonadism, and low vitamin D. So these are, these are critical uh, to investigate. So talking about this patient uh, who had osteopenia, what's the next step? So number one, treat with a bisphosphonate. Number two, treat with calcium and vitamin D. Number three, work up secondary causes of low BMD. Number four, treat with a bisphosphonate, calcium and vitamin D, and work up the secondary causes all at once. So no one wants to treat him right away. Some people wanted to treat him with calcium. Someone want to work up, and, and almost the majority want to do the, the full monitor. Uh, so we'll talk about about this. So one thing that we need to do with this gentleman is figure out 
whether or not he needs to be treated. So he's, he's, uh, he does have low bone mineral density in the osteopenic range, but not the osteoporotic range. So if you look at the NOF guidelines of who to treat, you treat people who have a history of, of hip or vertebral fractures, because you want to prevent another one. You treat people who have uh, T-scores uh, less than or equal to minus 2.5 at the three sites that we generally look at, the femoral, neck, total hip, or the spine. And then for people who have uh, scores in the osteopenic range, uh, we need to do something different. And uh, that, and this is a, a, uh, a innovation of this uh, guideline, set of guidelines compared to previous, is that here you can calculate a person's 10-year absolute risk of having a fracture. And I'll show you how to do that. But if the person has an absolute risk of having a, all osteoporotic fractures 20% or greater, uh, then that would prompt treatment. Or hip fracture in particular of 3% or greater, then that would prompt treatment as well. So how do you figure out uh, what the person's risk of having a fracture? And that's this, the FRAC score. So if you Google FRAC, so you're, you go to this, this website here, you go under under calculation tool, go to your, your country of interest and your demographic of interest, and you fill in the patient's data. And for this gentleman, uh, what you see is that his uh, risk of major osteoporotic fracture is 18%, but his risk of hip fracture is 4%. So this hip fracture of 4% is greater than the 3% threshold, so uh, you would consider uh, treating him with a bisphosphonate. But before we do this, we need to know whether or not he has secondary causes of low bone mineral density. And so there are a whole bunch of different secondary causes of low bone mineral density. What I've written here are the ones that I think of most in clinic, and, and the ones in yellow are the ones that I almost always uh, do uh, when I see a patient. These other ones I do if there's other clinical indications suggesting Cushing's or multiple myeloma, for example. So vitamin D deficiency, hyperparathyroidism, subclinical hyperthyroidism, hypogonadism, or phosphate wasting. And this is particularly important for patients on tenofovir who may have uh, wasting of, urinary wasting of phosphate. And I want to bring your attention to two of these. Uh, one of them is severe vitamin D deficiency. So we know vitamin D deficiency is very common in the population, but here is severe vitamin D deficiency and also phosphate wasting. The importance of this is that low bone mineral density in these two settings may not be related to osteoporosis at all. It might be related to osteomalacia. So what's osteomalacia? So in osteomalacia, there, the collagen matrix is there, but it's not mineralized with calcium phosphate crystals. And so it's a syndrome that's accompanied by weakness, fracture, pain, anorexia, and weight loss, but you don't necessarily have to have these entities. And the important thing here is that although the bone mineral density is low, it's not treated with bisphosphonates. So you treat severe vitamin D deficiency with vitamin D, of course, and calcium to remineralize. Uh, if you have uh, a patient with phosphate wasting on tenofovir, you might switch the person off of tenofovir. And all, in addition to the uh, vitamin D and calcium, you might uh, need to replace them with phosphate as well. And the problem is that if you give this patient bisphosphonates, uh, a patient with osteomalacia, they actually may have more difficulty mineralizing their bone. Uh, so we, you need to figure this out up front. And so this is the, by far the most important differential diagnosis in low bone mineral density. 
So here's a case, a 51-year-old guy with a history of HIV since 2001, low Nader CD4 cell count, doing well on this regimen, a tenofovir-containing regimen, with efavirenz, uh, but his CD4, his CD4 cell recovery hasn't been that great. He's a bit of a drinker, um, he's a former smoker, has a history with osteoporosis, no fractures. He has a history of two traumatic fractures. He fell backwards on a boat and, uh, and uh, broke uh, his foot. And also, he was blade skiing and ran into a tree uh, and had a fracture as a result. Uh, so here are his numbers. Uh, so he has osteoporosis of the spine. Uh, but his, femoral, his hip site doesn't look too bad. So minus 1.4 the femoral neck and normal in the total head. If you calculate his fracs, his absolute risk of fracture is really low. And, and keep in mind, one of the big drivers of fracs is, is age. And this guy is only 51 years old. And you can see that his 10-year risk of all osteoporotic fractures is 4.7. Hip fracture is 0.5. So really quite low numbers. If you look at his secondary workup, pretty much negative. So uh, normal calcium, normal TSH, normal free testosterone. He's on tenofovir, but has a, a, a normal serum phosphate with normal fractional excretion. His vitamin D level is a little on the low side, but this isn't the kind of vitamin D that I worry about for osteomalacia. What you would see in osteomalacia is a very low vitamin D, generally single digits. The PTH goes way up. Uh, so uh, it would be you'd have secondary hyperparathyroidism, and I don't show it here, but the alkaline phosphatase would also be very high. But this gentleman has vitamin D deficiency, but not osteomalacia. So let's talk a little bit about vitamin D, uh, and there's some debate over what the normal levels are. And unlike a lot of things that we measure on patients. Vitamin D deficiency is not defined by a bell curve, where after two standard deviations, uh, someone's high, or two standard deviations below, uh, someone's, someone's low. It's defined by the level at which the parathyroid hormone starts to rise in the population setting. So it's usually somewhere between uh, 20 and 30 that happens as you move down the vitamin D spectrum. So most people would consider a vitamin D less than 20 as deficiency, greater than 30 as normal, and then there's this gray area, this vitamin D insufficiency or inadequacy between 20 and 30. Now there are lots of reasons why we're, uh, vitamin D deficiency is so common in our population. So uh, sun exposure is a big reason. Uh, so we're less physically active than usual and less physically active outside. Uh, BMI is a big, uh, uh, high BMI is associated with lower vitamin D levels. Uh, dark skin is associated with lower vitamin D levels. Uh, and these, of course, are all operative in the, in the HIV population. There may be other reasons in the HIV population, uh, namely medications. And we know that efavirenz has pretty consistently been associated with a decrease in vitamin D levels. And this is a study that we did. It's a, it's a non-randomized trial, but it shows the, the same point that randomized trials have as well, that if people who initiate antiretroviral therapy on efavirenz have a decreased vitamin D compared to those who initiate without. And it's about a five nanogram per mil uh, difference. So a relatively small difference. This is about a third of the uh, difference that you see between blacks and whites, for example, in their vitamin D level, and about half of the difference that you see between uh, summer and uh, winter. 
But nevertheless, this is a, a, a clear contributor. So, uh, for this gentleman, uh, what is the optimal vitamin D replacement? Uh, number one, uh, D3, 400 international units a day. Uh, D, number two, D3, 2,000 international units a day. Uh, number three, ergocalciferol, 50,000 units weekly for eight weeks. And number four, the optimal replacement regimen is So it looks like most people would do the ergocalciferol. Uh, fewer people would give him very low doses, which is probably a good thing. And then a lot of people say, hey, we're not really sure. And I, I think that, that there isn't great data to know exactly how to replace vitamin D. So um, while I would do three, and I did three, uh, I think four is probably the best answer, because it's really not known whether or not we should be replacing people with high doses of vitamin D, sort of filling up the tank, or should we be giving daily doses of vitamin D to be making, uh, uh, to correct his vitamin D deficiency? So this is what I typically do. So this is the filling up the tank approach, giving, uh, replacing the vitamin D and then maintaining, doing ergocalciferol, or you could do daily cholecalciferol as well. And then once you get, you've filled up the tank, you can maintain either with, uh, with uh, ergocalciferol once or twice a month, or daily doses of cholecalciferol. So my uh, thinking of the, about this has changed a little bit. Uh, and this study had something to do with it. So this is a very interesting study. You might have seen it was in JAMA a couple years ago. And uh, this is a non-HIV, but I think it, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And it really tells us that we don't know a lot about the best way to replace vitamin D. So what they did is they took postmenopausal women, and this was done in Australia a lot of postmenopausal women and, and said, okay, what if we give this group of vitamin D deficient women one huge slug of vitamin D yearly? So uh, half a million units of vitamin D uh, once a year. That way the, the drop in vitamin D that you get over the winter would be attenuated. And the idea is that you could decrease the risk of falls and fractures just by one uh, intervention a year. And these women were followed three to five years. And what you see over here, in the placebo group, the vitamin D levels don't budge, of course. In the treatment group, you get a spike in the vitamin D level, and then it comes down until the next dose, and then you get a spike. But the, the uh, level of vitamin D sort of remain, is maintained in what we consider sort of a target range of 30 to 50 uh, nanograms uh, throughout the year. So what happened in terms of the outcome? They were looking at fractures and falls. So they hypothesized that this would be a good thing for fractures and falls. Uh, that there would be decreased risk of fractures and decreased risk of falls in, in the vitamin D group. What they saw was the exact opposite. So the uh, people that were randomized to vitamin D had an increased risk of falls and an increased risk of fractures. So it was an unexpected finding, there's no question. And there's a, a lot of uh, question as to why this happened. Uh, it is possible that at such a high dose of vitamin D, uh, the body's response is to catabolize it, to get rid of it. And you don't get the, the conversion to 125-dihydroxy vitamin D. So there might have been relatively low levels of 125-vitamin D in the tissues. 
Then another hypothesis is that the women receiving vitamin D just felt so great that they you know, dusted off their bungee cords or skateboards and, and did all these kinds of things that they had wanted to do, and they fell as a result and fractured. Um, but, it, but it does tell us that, that we don't really, we do, this is sort of an extreme example, you know, uh, half a million units uh, once, once a year. But even with the 50,000 units uh, once a week, the fracture data really isn't all that strong. A lot of the fracture data is with daily dosing of, of D3. So while I do use, and I'll show you what, what I generally do, I, while I do use uh, ergocalciferol, uh, it does, this kind of thing makes me realize that, that we really need more data to understand what's the best way to replace vitamin D for these outcomes. So this is what I do. So I, I don't screen for vitamin D in everyone. I screen if the person has low bominal density, like the guy we just saw, or a history of falls. So falls is the other outcome where um, intervening with vitamin D seems to have a beneficial effect on outcome. So I'll check the vitamin D, and if the person is sufficient, I keep them on maintenance of 1,000. If the person is in this uh, range of 20 to 30, I might give them 2,000. If they're in this 15 to 20, I do the ergocalciferol thing, uh, giving 50,000 units uh, once a week for eight weeks, and then give uh, 2,000 thereafter. If they're less than 15, then I'll be a little bit more aggressive, so giving a little bit more ergocalciferol over a longer period of time, and that's when I would recheck the vitamin D. And if the person has an elevated PTH or alkaline phosphatase or symptoms suggestive of osteomalacia, then uh, I think it's important to give them, give them higher doses and really uh, look, at, look at their vitamin D levels much more carefully. So for this guy, uh, this is with, uh, uh, to refresh your memories, he's the guy, young, otherwise healthy, maybe a bit of a drinker, but, uh, but had low uh, or osteoporosis at the spine, but fine, a good BMD at the hip. So I did plain films of the thoracic and lumbar spine, and this is actually a really good way to risk stratify your patients, someone who's in this osteopenia category, because uh, about 50% of spine fractures are occult. But that person, that does still elevate the risk of having another fracture. So if this gentleman had had an occult spine fracture, I probably would have been pushed to treat him with a bisphosphonate. I did vitamin D replacement uh, with, uh, with 50,000 units a week, uh, week for 12 weeks and then put him on maintenance. I gave him calcium and asked him to continue exercising and maybe avoid the blade scheme. So what if this guy, instead of being 51, had been 71? Okay? So we know that age is really the big driver of fracture, even at this exact same BMD. Uh, the people 20 years older have a... a much higher risk of fracture. So this would change my, I, I would feel less comfortable about uh, not treating him with a bisphosphonate. So what I would generally do is do calcium and vitamin D supplementation, uh, smoking cessation if needed, alcohol reduction, weight-bearing exercise. And uh, assessing fall risk is something that, that I think is really important that we do. Uh, more than 80% of fractures happen when people fall down, so if we can keep them on their feet, uh, we'll uh, do a, uh, them a, a great service in, in trying to decrease the risk of fractures. And one question you can ask them, which is a really short one, is are you worried about falling? So it turns out that people who are worried about falling and who uh, change the way that they move around their environment, as a result, 
uh, have an increased risk of falls. And so what you can do is that you can refer those patients to uh, physical therapy for strength and balance training to help keep them on their feet. Now regarding treatment, the, as in the general population, the first-line therapy are bisphosphonates. For women, you can use selective estrogen receptor modulators. For women with hot flashes, estrogen. And you can also use a PTH analog. But bisphosphonates are generally uh, the way to go. Now there are a bunch of different bisphosphonates that we uh, have access to. So this is alendronate, resedronate, abandronate, and zolendronic acid. The efficacy is about the same. There's uh, alendronate and zolendronic acid have, have probably the, the best efficacy, decreasing fractures by about 30 to 40 percent. Uh, resedronate uh, less, less than, the, at least the BMD changes are less than, than alendronate. And bandronate, this is the Boniva, the Sally Field one, really has never been shown to decrease uh, non-vertebral fractures. The, one of the big considerations here is cost. And so look at the differences in cost across the spectrum. And this is because alendronate is the only available bisphosphonate that's generic. And so my practice is to give generic bisphosphonate unless there's a reason not, not to. And the reasons that people have, have trouble with, uh, or have, why they have, would have trouble with a uh, oral bisphosphonate are the GI side effects. Compliance can also be an issue. And uh, in that case, yearly zoledronic acid uh, might be a good alternative. Now, there's a lot of concern now, and you've probably heard in, in the popular press and the, in the medical literature about long-term use of bisphosphonates. And, and what do you do? How long should people be on these medications? And should we give, be giving them a drug holiday? And the concern is, is because of this issue of oversuppression of bone turnover. So we rely on uh, bone turnover to repair microfractures that happen during everyday wear and tear. And if you suppress that, and these medications are very potent suppressors of bone turnover, you can lead to, to paradoxically an increased risk of fracture, particularly in the subtrochanteric area, so these sort of below the, 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 uh, on the top of the femur, below the hip bone. The other long effect of long-term uh, bisphosphonates is osteonecrosis of the jaw. And both of these have emerged as, as uh, being related to bisphosphonate use, but fortunately are, are all quite, quite rare. Uh, so uh, there's concern that maybe we should, in patients who have been on bisphosphonates for five years, maybe we should give them a holiday. Or people who have lower bone mineral density, uh, maybe we should wait 10 years and give them a holiday. But really, the optimal holiday is, is unknown how long to do it and after how long of a period. There is also some concern about atrial fibrillation, acute phase reaction for IV bisphosphonates, and there's some concern about esophageal cancer. So bisphosphonates are generally well tolerated, uh, and, they're, and they're efficacious, but the concern are these long-term risks, which we're really just starting to get a handle on. The other consideration from a management standpoint is whether or not to switch him off of tenofovir. So he had been on tenofovir, uh, he had no evidence of phosphate wasting. And so uh, I pose to you, would you switch him off his tenofovir? Uh, so we're pretty split. So 56% say no, 43% say yes. And um, my thinking actually has evolved a little bit on this issue. 
mostly because the long-term effects of, of bisphosphonates are unknown. And if the, the man does have other antiretroviral options, it may make sense to switch him off. I can't say that it's really going to decrease his, his risk of fracture, but it may help. And we've seen some studies, this was just uh, last month at Croy, where um, patients on tenofovir with low bone mineral density were randomized to, to either switching to a bacavir or continuing on tenofovir. In the switch to a bacavir, there was an increase in bone mineral density with no change in the femoral neck. In the lumbar spine, no change with the bacavir, but decreases in tenofovir. Similarly, uh, if you use a nucleoside uh, sparing regimen, so in this study, it was a single arm study, but I think an interesting one, tenofovir was replaced with raltegravir. And over this 48-week period, there was a, a two, uh, over a 2% increase in the uh, total hip and about a 3% increase in the lumbar spine. So bone density does go up after, deep, after withdrawing tenofovir. And for, particularly at someone at high risk of fracture, an older person with low bone mineral density, it may make sense to withdraw. So in conclusion, uh, DEXA screening is recommended in HIV-infected persons in men greater than 50 and in postmenopausal women. The treatment guidelines should follow those established for the general population. And it's real important to remember secondary causes of low, of low bone mineral density, including severe vitamin D deficiency and possible wasting and use the absolute risk of fracture to help this, your decision making. And so I'll pose the question, what tool can be used to calculate a person's absolute risk of fracture over 10 years? All right, 90%. That was, yeah, that was great. Uh, we have some time for questions. One of the things that um, we tried to do was um, follow out our patients because we were concerned that tenofovir long term. And it's really hard to capture fracture data from electronic records and that type of thing. Have you, have you all studied that to any degree and how do you go about that? Um, to, to look at... Uh, yeah, you know, just in the naturally occurring in the clinic, say at the Moore Clinic or yeah, elsewhere, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, the people in closed systems, it's a lot easier <laughs> in yeah. VA systems, but uh, in other systems, uh, like at Hopkins, people, and oftentimes with fractures, people go to the closest hospital rather That's than right. come, coming to Hopkins. So um, there's not a, a great way of, of, of doing that. Right. There, yeah, there was a lot of... Uh, there was a lot of looking at this, but I think that was the point that the patients, when they had their fracture, didn't come into our system. They went somewhere else. And unless the providers actually got the history and put it in the chart, it just didn't exist. Okay, so um, if a patient goes off tenofovir um, or, and or Kaletra and, uh, uh, and sees a risk decline, uh, is it permanent? And uh, does it matter the length of time on the drugs? Um, so those are good questions, and it's really not known. What I showed you there are the only two switch studies switching off of tenofovir. Um, I, 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 my guess is that it probably goes up to a certain point and then stabilizes. A lot of the differences that you see as a result of antiretroviral therapies 
uh, happen quite quickly and I think recover quite quickly as well. If I could guess, I would think that, that um, after 48 weeks there wouldn't be much additional uh, improvement uh, and things would level out. So this one, this question refers to slide uh, 31 um, about when you're talking about the annual dose of vitamin D and associated with fractures, et cetera. It seemed like your p-value was 0.06, so it didn't quite reach didn't quite reach statistical significance. In, in other, that was the, the, the graphic, but in, when you looked at other fractures, it did reach statistical significance. Um, but the, I think the, you know, we, we focus a lot on p-values, but the, the, the big message here is, uh, is that there was, it, it was exactly opposite of what the authors hypothesized. And I think you addressed this a little bit, but are there data on um, decreased fractures when switching from tenofovir to something else like raltegravir? There aren't. There aren't, yeah. Okay. Would you recommend checking vitamin D levels as part of routine care for patients uh, with HIV less than 50 years? I don't. Uh, you know, the, the patients that I check vitamin D levels on are those who have a history of bone problems and those who have a history of falls. Uh, because what you, you, you know, if you've been checking vitamin D levels, you're going to find that they're low. If you replace them, you're going to find that, you're, that you do increase their vitamin D levels. Whether or not you're doing anything good for the patient is totally unclear. This next question is kind of a typical question we always ask in the U.S. If a certain dose of vitamin D is good, would more be better? So yeah. can you push the dose to some higher level and get a better effect? Yeah, completely unknown. And um, there, there's some concern that pushing people too high is problematic. So really high levels, you can get hypercalcemic. Uh, but even levels in the, in the 60 to 70 range, uh, some studies have found that they've been problematic. So this question is for women above the age of uh, 50 who are taking calcium supplements, and that there was a... Uh, Recent studies showing an increased number of heart attacks in those people who uh, uh, were postmenopausal. Uh, does that change your recommendation about calcium supplementation? Yeah, so that's a really important question. I'm glad someone brought it up. So there, there has been data showing that calcium supplementation and people, this is people in the Women's Health Initiative and a bunch of other studies, is associated with increased risk of myocardial infarction. Keep in mind that these people didn't necessarily have osteoporosis. So the current recommendation is if you don't have osteoporosis, you shouldn't be taking calcium supplementation. If you do have osteoporosis, you should be getting adequate calcium, so that's 1,000 milligrams a day, 1,000 to 1,200, but you should try to get most of that through diet and just make up the rest uh, through supplementation. Okay. After the after five-year period of bisphosphonates, uh, how long should the bisphosphonate free period be? Ah, great question. So completely unknown, um, uh, but typically what I do, it sort of depends on what their baseline risk was. If the person never should have been on bisphosphonates to begin with, I take them off indefinitely and I follow their bone density after two years and four years. If the person has low bone density, uh, say in the osteoporotic range, has not had a fracture, then I'll take them off after five years and I'll follow their bone density after a year. And if there's a significant drop, then I'll think about either putting them back on or putting on teriparatide or some other uh, bone medication. For some, for some people who have really bad bones, so T-scores in the minus 3.5 range have, or have a history of, of a lot of fragility fractures, I'm very uncomfortable with taking people off of their medication. The study that, real, that looked at this, um, where they looked at uh, the 10-year risk of fracture with people on bisphosphonates for 10 years versus people who, who stopped after five, 
they excluded the people who had a t-score of less than minus 3.5. They couldn't be randomized to either nothing or continued uh, bisphosphonate. So we know very little about this population who are at extremely high risk of, of uh, fracturing. Right. And then a segue to our next talk. It seemed to me that when people are looking at these chronic viral infections, be it HIV or HCV, that vitamin D levels, as a rule, are reduced. Do you think there's an association of ongoing viral replication or inflammation that might be leading to poor absorption of vitamin D or something like that? Yeah, or increased catabolism. Yeah, yeah I, I, I don't know, um, but it, but it's a, it's a good hypothesis in the festival. And since we brought up Sally Fields, do you think Mrs. Doubtfire had osteomalacia uh, <laughs> or something? Uh, yeah, she might have. She might have. Okay. <laughs> That's important. I was really curious about that. So thanks a lot. Okay, that sure was a wonderful thing. talk. Great review. Sure.